Hello, welcome back to Culture Dumps. I'm Ryan Lichten. I'm Parks Miller. And today we are covering a very beefy topic. But before we get into it, just wanted to say if you're listening to this show on the Podcast 99 channel, please be sure to subscribe to a Culture Dump account. It helps us out. We want to keep it separate so Podcast 99 can remain sacred. <laughs> but we wanted to, you know, give you guys a, a heads up that we are doing a new show. So that's why we're putting these up on both accounts. Again, if you're listening to this on Culture Dumps, thank you. If you're listening to this on Podcast 99, get with the program uh, is, this, is essentially uh, yeah. the, the message here. So today we are covering one of the biggest scandals in the history of music, period. This is, of course, the Millie Vanilli story. Now, it's pretty self-explanatory why this one would be considered a culture dump. Um, I mean, not only was this the biggest group on the planet when they ran into their controversy, but they just got dropped like a hot potato. And the reason why we feel it's relevant to bring up and it makes it kind of culturally relevant is we live in a day and age now where people pay to see performers, not necessarily hear them play their songs. And that goes along with, you know, the social media explosion and, you know, hype and fame and, and all that stuff. It, it seems more enjoyable to young folks nowadays to just be in the presence of someone, to say that they were there, to tag it, take a selfie. And the music is kind of secondary. And so when you see some of the biggest acts come on stage and you know that there's a backing track playing the vocals, it really doesn't bother anyone. But in the early 90s, late 80s, it was a huge scandal that kind of shook the foundations of popular music for years to come. It's true. And, um, you know, and we'll get into it more. But, you know, we could almost call in a way Millie Vanilli the, the sacrificial lamb of uh, pop music performance. Yes. Uh, because, yeah, at the time, you're still just coming from an era where they're just it was kind of more assumed that if you are performing the song, it's because you're singing it. And uh <laughs> Right. And now, yeah, things have just changed so much since then in terms of uh, what is cool. And I will say uh, just about Millie Vanilli, you know, we've we know that this isn't like the first time that someone's done something on Millie Vanilli. You know, there was like the of VH1 course. behind the music. You know, there's a lot about it. Um, I think what we're also about, like those like rock and roll hundred like most shocking, shocking moments, moments and mm. stuff like that. Um, but I will say that I've I haven't really seen too much um, those those kind of coming from maybe a later uh, period those uh, documentaries or whatever about Millie Vanilli they don't really talk about how you know lip syncing is kind of like a standard it's a given now yes it's it's always kind of framed as like this thing was like so shocking and bad and I mean really diving into this and the research that you've done so wonderfully Ryan ah. it's like I didn't you know if you watch those older things you do just kind of assume like oh it sucks for them but you know they asked for it because you know kind of like uh, flying right. too close to the flame you're going to get burned your wings are going to melt off uh, but there's really a lot more to it than that and so that for that truly forgotten element makes it a dump you know with the controversy again Yes, uh, and this is a big dump right and, here. And, yeah, it's a huge dump that we're we're about to take uh, pun, all puns intended, all dump puns intended. We know we are six years old. It's fine, um, but also there, there's like a true crime element. I mean, some could say that by the end of this here installment of Culture Dumps, there will be a body on our hands, <laughs> and it'll yeah. be up to you, the listeners, to decide if whether or not this was a roundabout 
way of committing a murder, right? <laughs> or if it was just a, a, a tragic, uh, a, a tragic figure falling from grace. And it, it's funny when you say true crime because I've, I've been trying to think of like the analogy of like again as we just the baby steps of culture dumps trying to kind of define it which we never totally clearly will i mean i told ryan we're going to break our rules one day in terms of what we decide is is a dump or is not but when you say true crime i like to think of like the you know the image of the like the guy the who's got the conspiracy and yes. he's trying to like figure it out so like that's the thing is some of these topics you might have heard of before but if you take everything in the way that we conceptualize as culture dumps and just having it be classified as that we're hoping to sort of make this weird, crazy web, yes, uh, crazed man in the basement the, connection the of like all these yes. things being together as culture dumps, and hopefully that can I don't know something to wrap your brain around, right? And you know we're we're trying to create a mosaic of uh, generally American pop culture here, uh, but you know again the the forgotten shards that have uh, been swept swept off the floor, never to be heard of or seen again. But here we are. So little background on Millie Vanilli. Millie Vanilli was a pop duo made up of professional dancers Rob Pilatus and Fabrice Morvan, and was founded by German producer Frank Farian. The group would eventually have three number one singles and would win Best New Artist Grammy in 1990. They would also become the first artist in history to have their Grammy Award revoked. That is a huge, huge thing that's obviously the big pinnacle part of, of the story, but that, that, that's that's where we're at with this. That, that That's going to be where we end up. Right. But before we get to the beef... Well, it's the only Grammy, right? The it's only like Grammy to ever be revoked. And only. Yeah, yes. yeah. And we'll get into the kind of the logistics of that. But to start it off, we have to get behind the man behind the curtain here, the Wizard of Oz of German music, Frank Farian. Born in July of 1941, Frank Farian always had aspirations to make it in the music industry. He recorded his first single, Will You Ever Be Mine, under the name Frankie Farian in 1967. This single failed to make an impact, but his second single, Baby You Want a Bump, which was a cover of a song by Prince Buster, became very popular in Germany. He did not release this song as Frankie Farian, but rather as the then non-existent group Boney M. Yes. I got a Boney M for oh, you. <laughs> doesn't work it doesn't work but also it's like i just love that name but you can see i mean we're talking in the 60s he's already formulating this idea where it's like no like it's almost like phil specter you bring in people to record the music and then you have someone else fronting it you know what i mean that happened a lot in, in american music in the 60s uh but he's doing it in germany and it's really kind of one of the first instances of a completely fake group being created right and they're great i mean and i i didn't know that boney m was connected and uh, for anyone who's kind of into just, I mean, Boney M could be a culture dump, but I mean, it's, it is because it's part of this, but it's yes. just this really funny thing. They were this huge band and they have that big song Rasputin, which is a, so we've got a, <laughs> a Afro-Caribbean looking band uh, with a German ghostwriter uh, doing a 70s disco song about the like infamous Russian, I guess you for back of a, lack of a better polit politician con man, man monk, just yeah, who just has his own legend, true yeah. crime figure, responsible for a lot of heinous stuff. Actually, sitting behind me on the bookshelf, I have a book called the you know most evil men and women of all time, and right. Rasputin's on the cover. I mean, Rasputin's kind of one of those things. If you're, I don't know, if you're like trying, like the history teacher is trying to get his board 
class involved, you bring out Rasputin because yeah. you know he apparently had like a huge dick and he didn't take a shower and he, he couldn't get killed and stuff. And <laughs> the three elements to get the bored kid into it. <laughs> hey, kids, you like big dicks? You like dirty big dicks <laughs> from fucking Russia? Like <laughs> he had. <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> you know what I mean. Maybe, yeah, maybe you don't talk about the big dicks in school, but it's, it, I'm just saying it's one of those things where you're like, I mean, yeah, him not being able to get killed was the big thing. Yes, yeah, yeah they tried this, poisoning him right. and all, all, all sorts of crazy shit. But anyways, yes, interesting that that was like their huge hit. Very, very interesting. So Farian, he continued to, oh, and you know what? Let's just back up just to give you a, a taste. This is a bit of the song Rasputin from Boney M. So, throughout the 1970s, Boney M's popularity grew to the point where live shows and tours were in order, but Farion shied away from the spotlight, and again, he decided to hire a group to front the act during public appearances. And yes, they were like this like group from the, you know, Caribbean, and like they were like models and dancers, and you know, he, he just had this knack of finding people that fit the image that he was working with, right. you know, or, or that he was trying to produce. So he continued to write, record, and produce the group's songs, although live, the group hired to front the band did actually sing the songs. The group was led by Bobby Farrell, who was finally allowed to record vocals on the group's album, but was fired in 1981 for being unreliable. So you have this group singing songs that are already written for them. On the records, it's not them, it's Farion, which is interesting because, like, he's this German guy recording shit that live, you know, a bunch of you know people obviously not German are pulling off, right? You know, so right. I'm just picturing him like, is he doing like a Sebastian from Little Mermaid thing, like in the studio? And then when he's done, he's like, oh yes, like, well, I, I can't I, do a I German mean, accent. It, by the no, way. yeah, and in the in the late seventies, certainly, uh, like whatever this co a concept of a uh, cultural appropriation was right. way less a debated thing. Yes, um, and you and then you also have this kind of Eurocentric, like the cultures are just mashing up, and and there's just the disco thing. So. It just flew really well. It was a huge... I mean, this group, Boney M, has sold like a They're ton huge. of records, but they weren't... I don't think that they were really that big in the U.S. I mean, they, they made a dent, yeah. but not like... They weren't top 10 per se. So, you know, it, I'm sure people definitely know of them, but it's just also just one of those things where... I mean, sometimes just... Especially when you're dealing with American pop culture, you're like... It doesn't mean anything if a European group sells 10 million records in Europe. Right. It's like they sold 10 million records. Yeah, they sold 10 million records. Right. Exactly. And so, but that, and then the thing with with the singer who was finally allowed to record on the album, and then he doesn't. He, he he's flaky, so they fire him. I feel like that's putting the seed in Farian's head that he's like, you know what? From now on, I'm handling all that shit. You know, if you want right. to, if you can commit to the live stuff, great. But like, he, he's learning how to work out these kinks to have this well-oiled machine that he's truly the mastermind behind, mm -hmm. and that's like really where I feel like the seeds being planted. So Boney M, yes, they sold over one hundred oh, million mil records, a yes, yes. hundred million <laughs> records, making Farion incredibly wealthy. He put millions of dollars into a state-of-the-art studio he called Far Studios, which would be used by some of the world's top acts, most notably Stevie Wonder. Uh, also, it's notable that Lady Gaga samples a Boney M song, I believe in the song Poker Face. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, he, he's getting a new career now. He has this huge reputation. He's one of the top selling producers. And as a successful producer, 
Farion was hired to produce and make several albums for top-selling artists while also crafting his next big project, Far Corporation. Now, Far Corporation was a supergroup comprised of members of Toto, already second episode, wow. second Toto reference, uh, as well as Boney M, and a few other studio heavies. A lot of well-known studio musicians, no one to... You know, that anyone would recognize their name from. But uh, the group was originally formed to record a cover of Paul Simon's Mother and Child Reunion for a charity release, but they found major success in 1985 when they released a cover of Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, making them the first act to chart this song since Led Zeppelin never released that song as a single. It reached number eight on the UK singles charts and number 87 on the Billboard Hot 100. Not that great Not in America, but doing great overseas. Right. And also, just like kind of the the stud points of being like, yeah, we got Stairway to Heaven on the charts. Right, but, right. I mean, no one remembers the yeah. Far Corporation's right. thing. Though he did, um, and this is breaking the timeline a bit, but uh, I love that group LaBouche. Oh, he, yeah. So he, after Millie Vanilli's controversy, he did have one more success with LaBouche, um, which I just want to point out because uh, Be My Lover, great song. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And also, it's like, yeah, Farion just had his finger on the pulse of nightclubs. Mm -hmm. You know, he just knew what was going to be going down. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that he owned several nightclubs, too. So he like could try out music in these clubs and see what was happening. Uh, but craving the success that he found with Boney M, Farion began constructing a new project, a project much like Boney M, where he would have total control over the production of the music and then hire a group to be the public face. Enter Robin Fab, a.k.a. Millie Vanilli. Now, Millie Vanilli technically on on paper and on screen is Rob Pilatus and Fabrice Morvan. Let's get into their past real quick. So Rob Pilatus, a.k.a. just Rob, was born in Munich, Germany in 1965 to an American soldier father and a German stripper mother who gave him up for adoption. At the age of four, he was adopted by a family in Munich. At that time, Munich was a very conservative city with very little cultural diversity. This made early life difficult for Rob, who often found himself the butt of racist jokes and a victim of bullying in school. In his teens, Rob left home to pursue a career in modeling and breakdancing. Dance had become a major emotional outlet for Rob as he found it helped him escape the depression that came with being treated like such an outsider. So back in the 80s, by the way, breakdancing had just come into the like the spotlight and you really could make a career for yourself being just a dancer. I mean, you still can, but back then if like, if you were a good looking person that could break dance, you're going to get hired to be on all these TV appearances, dancing for, you know, big acts. You're going to be doing fashion shows, all that kind of stuff. It's like when Madonna came out with Vogue and all of a sudden now all these people that can do like Vogue dancing all mm -hmm. got these jobs when before right, it was just, right. you know, underground. So now Fabrice, Fabrice Morvan, a.k.a. Fab, was born in Paris, France in 1966. Fab grew up loving music and dance and went through years of professional dance training. Growing up in one of the cultural hubs of the world, Fab was exposed to many types of music and dance and quickly realized that he wanted to make performing his life's work. By his late teens, Fab had moved to Germany where he made a name for himself locally as a great dancer in the club scene. Again, it's like this great moment in time where it's like, oh, that guy can fucking dance. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, no one gives a shit who's a good dancer. Like, you know what I mean? You don't well, go to a club to show off your dance moves. Yeah, anymore. and I mean, but, you know, club music was just exploding in a different way at this time. So, you know, it was... Th these were cool kids. Yeah, no, they were rad. I mean, they, and, yes, they, and were they were really they were cool. cool kids, like at clubs, just like trying to like just be seen, you know, be yes. seen. Good dancers and fuck, let's just say it. Both of these guys were handsome as they're shit. hunks. They're studs. They're, they're, they, yeah, 
they're gorgeous men. Yeah, and so <laughs> so they're they're destined to find each other. Millie Vanilli actually translates to gorgeous men. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, we'll get to what it actually means. So there are several different accounts of how the two actually met, but the most common story is that they met in 1988 at a club in Munich. The second most common story is that they met at a dance seminar in Los Angeles and then reconnected in Munich. I'm pretty sure that's the one because uh, I was just going through these LA Times articles. A lot of our source information for this was an interview Fab did with on Vlad TV the great you know hip hop and rap uh YouTube show, you know, a lot of in-depth interviews there. He did a two-hour interview. It's amazing. And then also these LA Times articles because they were covering it very closely when everything broke out. Um so that that's what was reported in the LA Times, but in interviews and stuff I hear that they met in Germany and then kind of ran into each other later. But anyways, uh, <laughs> they also bonded over, you know, like when they met, not only did they bond over their love of dance, but they bonded over their experiences growing up and their use of the English language because both of them spoke a different language. Whereas Rob, you know, spoke German, Fab spoke French. So the only way they could speak to each other was in broken English. Kind of interesting. And that will be a major focal point of this scandal as it develops. Yep. Mm-hmm. So they also realized that there is strength in numbers, and rather than competing with one another, they decided to join forces to create a pop duo, which they named Rob and Fab. While Fab did not really have much experience with making music, Rob had actually performed as a backup singer for a group called Wind, who won second place in the 1987 Eurovision Song Contest. I, I can imagine maybe they're at a dance club, and it's like, it sounds like a movie, like these two, like, <laughs> these like young, fit dudes who are both just like, Probably got, you know, the hair teased up. They got their outfits on. It was Double board. Dragon. Right. And they're kind of like giving each other like a, you know, a Across nasty eye. <laughs> and then they like dance up to each other. And like, you know, it's strength in numbers. Yeah. Like, let's. We should not be fighting. Right. And then they do like a hand clasp. But and it then turns like, into a move. Right, right. Oh, yeah. And everyone's like, cheering. We're going to figure this out. Yes. And the Eurovision Song Contest that Rob was uh, part of winning second place in is huge. It's like American Idol. You know, and it still goes on. And it's yeah. actually really fascinating because you get these like very bizarre mixtures of like European you know traditional culture of whatever country it is and like they'll include a lot of like they want to like really represent their country right but then it like it's also completely infused with whatever is like just globally popular at the time Mm -hmm. so you'll find a lot of like I don't know, like klezmer folk music mixed with like huge EDM beats. Yeah, like, it's it like still a, goes like a dulcimer on now. with like drum machines. Right, right. It's and really interesting. Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams just came out with a movie called they did. Eurovision or, they something, did. or something I, like that. I saw it. I didn't watch uh, it. I saw it existed. I haven't seen yeah, it. Yeah, okay, okay. So the two young men were competitive, but they were united. They often competed for each other's girls or crowd recognition. Again, that's just handsome guys, you know, in, in the prime of their youth, just being handsome guys. I mean, it's all. You know, it was all in good fun, but they did totally bang each other's girlfriends behind each other's back, and they definitely wanted to be the more popular one. But again, since they were had such a unique dynamic together, they just couldn't be separated. So yes, they competed with you know with each other, but they knew that it was just for the greater good. It's the it's the star-crossed partnership, you know, like the two that were meant to be. Yeah, so they're like the Simon and Garfunkel of breakdancing. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this is how I'm going to say it. So in order to pay the bills during this time, the two began modeling for catalogs and run ratios, as well as performing at dance showcases where they would show off their breakdance skills or do Michael Jackson impersonations. That was a huge thing. If you could do a moonwalk, 
people wanted you to come and do that on stage at you know clubs or, or what have you. And it's also rumored that Fab held a part-time job at McDonald's during this time. It's just, these guys are hustling. You know what I mean? They're really trying to get recognized and at the same time trying to make a name for themselves as a pop duo. Everyone knows them as models. They, they basically have the makings of a pop duo without the music. I mean, a, working at a German McDonald's just seems cooler than working at an guess, American one. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's a great, it's a great job, I'm sure, <laughs> you know. But I, I don't, I don't want to say anything bad about the people that work at McDonald's or what have you. But I can tell you right now, they don't look like Fab. No. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean that, that. That just imagine pulling up and he's just like, "What do you want to eat?" <laughs> but <laughs> the duo released an album under a small German label in 1988, and it sold just a few thousand copies. The buzz was just enough, though, to grab the attention of the German mega producer Frank Farian. So they were working on music, but weren't getting the attention. Again, though, it's just so interesting nowadays standards compared to then, because a few thousand copies, like. Great, but back then that's like, damn, we're never gonna go anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, so, the duo was summoned to Frank Farian's Far Studios for a meeting. Upon seeing them, Farian knew he had found the faces of his new unnamed project. It was during this very meeting that Farian presented Robin Fab with a contract for a three-album deal. However, with no knowledge of how contracts work, what to look for, or even what they were agreeing to, the two were defenseless and. Being that they were in such a tight spot financially, the 1500 Deutschmark advance was too much to pass up or wait on. So without an attorney, they signed the contract on January 1st, 1988, setting the stage for one of the most controversial moments in music history. It's one of those classic stories, the, like, like the, right. the moment when they shake the hand, it's like, <laughs> right. It's like you get you. It's like they get the taste. They're young, inexperienced. But I can they give you money right they now. Have the, the bright, shining star. You've got the potential. All the right words. Yeah, wow, three albums. words yeah. were like said. And just signing a contract and having no idea that Farion is just, it's like chess. He's five, ten steps ahead. Yeah. Like they are fitting into his puzzle piece. Without even knowing. You know? And it's yeah. really sad because, you know, it's like they were really trying to do something real. And, and they, you know. A three album deal is a huge thing and money on the table when you're broke. It's hard to walk away from that. And they just didn't know any better. They were young men, you know, with no experience. But before Farian and Robin Fab got together, Farian already had the group single ready to go. After the contract was signed, Farian showed the duel the instrumental track for what would be their first song, Girl, You Know It's True. Robin Fab loved the track and were eager to record their vocals. They recorded a small bit of vocals each, and it was then that Farion explained what their role would actually be. According to Fab, Farion showed them the song, then brought them into another room where he showed them the song with pre-recorded vocals and explained they were not hired to sing, but to perform the right. songs. Right, and, and I think it was even broken down where he first showed them the instrumental only, yeah. and they were so blown away by it, it was kind of like, kind of luring them in like listen to this like this is a song, song for this you. is what you're gonna do so then they're already hooked but he just literally had just muted the vocals he had already recorded yeah. and then once he got them a little further in then he showed them yeah i've already done the vocals yeah you know you're hired to yeah, perform yeah, yeah that's you, it like their contract basically said no you're performing three albums you're not gonna you we're not expecting you to actually record right but he was also kind of dangling a carrot right where he's like do this one for me and then the next yeah. one's for you yeah and these are just things i already have your yeah. vocals on the next one right they, they were they were led on little by little yeah. and that's kind of the the sad 
kind of underlying theme of this whole mm-hmm. thing. So Rob and Fab were very upset by this, but they were already in too deep. Varian told them that in order to be released from the contract, they would have to pay back their advances plus any expenses they had accumulated, which by this time was already in the high thousands. They decided it would be best to continue with the deal as it stood in hopes that they would be able to pay their way out or at the very least record vocals on the next track. So again, you know, right after they get their advance, that's a check in hand, but it's like, hey, we're going to put you up in these hotels. Feel free to order room service, alcohol, whatever you want. Have right. a party. It's all on us while we're working on this project. Yeah, and then it's like, oh, you know, you don't want to do this for us? Okay, here's the bill for the last however many Which months. Which is like human trafficking and shit. And then it's like, oh, shit, what do we do? And so, I mean, it's it's like a classic, like, bait and switch yeah. kind of just like, here's the lap of luxury, everything. That's what, like, awful human traffickers do. It's like, yes, I will get you over here to get you into a job. Oh, you're here. Give me your passport. Now you have to pay back everything that, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, with interest. So it's like, they're just stuck now. So they right. just decide, well... I mean, but it, it. But, but it's so close. And because again, and this is the thing where, you know, Frank Farion might not mean a lot to say like, a, you know, American names, but this is like, this is fucking gold. I mean, this is like, this is like a Diddy-esque character that right. they're dealing with. This isn't, you know, it's no, this like, this is a mogul. Yeah. They're like, oh my God, this is, so it's just the, this threat that's been combined with the appeal. If you just go through with it, just, you know, just, just do a little bit yeah. more. Just, just do this thing. It's like, the potential is just so great. Right. And at the very least, you'll be famous and rich. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's that too. But they're artists. So in reality, Farron already had the future of his new group planned out and spoken for. For over a year, he had been secretly recording songs for this new group, oftentimes separating each musician in order to preserve the secret of what he was planning. Rob and Fab had already found their signature look in 1987 after watching a documentary about pop culture icons. They realized the importance of aesthetic and decided to wear their hair in long braids. Then came the name. They wanted to change the name from Rob and Fab to something that didn't necessarily symbolize the two performers, but instead presented the act as a whole group. Millie was taken from an employee of Farion's by the same name, and Vanilli came from Vanilla Ice Cream. It's great, and it rhymes. It's fun. It's such a good, like, fun pop right. name. Right, and even though it was more for legal reasons, because it's like, well, the group's called Robin Fab. Robin yeah. Fab aren't really don't have anything to do with it. So right. Millie Vanilli kind of guards him from that, while also giving like, oh, well, which one's Millie? Which one's right, Vanilli? Right, exactly. And it's there's like all the, these rumors. The Pink Floyd, like, who's Pink Floyd? Is it right. a guy? You know? Yes, yes. Who's the, Def Leppard? Right. <laughs> 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 but you know. What? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But there's also like, like someone said, you know, what one of the rumors was that it means like good vibes in Turkey and Turkish or something. But I mean, it, it that's came from Fab's mouth. Nope, it's Millie the the desk girl and vanilla ice cream. So the song that they you know made famous and made them famous, "Girl, You Know It's True" itself did not come from Farion directly. A Baltimore-based group known as New Marks released a song called "Girl, You Know It's True" in 1987, but received little attention in the U.S. The song made its way to European dance clubs, many of which played American music in order to bring in English-speaking clientele, and would eventually be played at a club ran by Farion. He decided to rework the song and make it the first single for his new group. Number we're going to do really quick is we're going to play you first the New Marks version of Girl You Know It's True, just a little bit of it. Then we're going to play the Millie Vanilli version. And you can see there is very little done to this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. it's interesting because this song went on to be a huge number one hit, but it already existed. Yeah. So first, it's New Marks. Second is Millie Vanilli. This is true. 
And now for the Millie Vanilli version. So it's virtually identical. Yeah. You know what I mean? But again, right. like he just bought the song because it wasn't doing that great. He heard it in the club. He's like, great. But so we got to talk about this because just this is pretty mind boggling for us, you know, in the age of with social media and like Twitter and just like calling people out, you know, like, I mean, what was it? Uh, what was the uh, Lady Antebellum? They like. Oh, they they tried to, you know, they changed, they decided to change the name to Lady A. Yeah. And then there was a rapper named Lady A. And then they were going to have an agreement. And it went south. And then she, you know, sues Lady Ant, or Lady Antebell. They were trying to sue Lady A, but she already had the name first. Anyway, my whole point is like, you hear about this shit so All fast. The time. Yeah. So this girl, you know, it's, this Newmark song was released as a single. There was copies of it. Physical copies existed, but because it just didn't do much outside of like clubs, just Baltimore, like it just, this is a completely different area where it's entirely possible to just pick a song that's already been released and then just make it something else. And just else. do it. Yeah. And, and it's New like what people do with movies nowadays. Right. Like Newmarks, they're not going to tweet out like, hey, that's our song. It just no one. <laughs> Who's this guy following? Yeah. Yeah. No. So, but interesting thing about Newmarks, it featured Kevin Lyles, who went on to be the president of Def Jam Records and then the executive vice president of Warner Brother Records. So he was like, I'm not getting ripped off ever again. Yeah, I'm about to get my. That. I'm going to do the ripping yeah, off. Yeah. I'm going to become an executive. <laughs> if anyone's getting know, ripped off, it's my client. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So Robin Fab filmed a performance on a local news station and their popularity began to rise. So Farion had them film a professional music video. The news thing was a performance and then so he's like, well, let's make an actual video that we can market. By this time, Billy Vanilli knew that they were in over their heads, but with their star on the rise, they decided to play along. They also began to reap the benefits of success and threw lavish parties filled with sex, drugs, and booze. There was also a lot of food. I don't know why, but in all the interviews, they're like, oh, and the food. Oh, the food, man. Like, like it's like, I mean, again, I, that's like a broke thing. You know what I mean? They're, yeah. they're broke. So it's like, you know, we're, we're eating hamburgers. If and the food has home. gold in it, you know, you know, you're on a different level. Yeah. He's just like, oh, shit, caviar and like shrimps. But uh, I, I don't know why those two struck me as like rich foods. But I mean, caviar, caviar is shrimp. I, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I got shrimp in the fridge right now. I'm not Millie Vanilli. But I just love that they always bring that up. But yeah, so, and their drug of choice was obviously uh, cocaine. That's just fits the Millie Vanilli aesthetic. So Farian released the first, their first single in Germany and then the full album titled All or Nothing across Europe in 1988. With the release of the album came touring. Millie Vanilli loved to perform and were told that if they continued to play along with the provided material, they would be given artistic input on the next album. This promise, along with another advance of $20,000 each and all expense paid stays in the best hotels available, sealed the deal for Millie Vanilli and the biker short clad duo went all in. Yeah, and I mean, so this song blew up. Yeah, huge. It, it blew up, um, you know, because one thing it had is there's kind of like a, it's like a big, like synthesized R&B track, and then there's the rapping part and the singing part. And so they, that was another just thing where he kind of tapped in Farion in terms of like the rap was still like a newer genre. Right. But mixing with like the R&B. So like it took off like 
really quickly. Right. And also, you know, towards the end of the 80s, you have like the introduction of gangster rap and stuff and, and rap started getting kind of. Like, yeah, but this is before gangster yeah, rap. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it's, like, it's like kind of like right in the pocket because you had like NWA and, and, and stuff right. like that. that kind of changing the landscape of, of rap music. But like to come at like, you know, because MC Hammer started kind of falling out. Yeah. And, like this positive stuff and fun stuff. So Millie Vanilli kind of brought it back like really hard right before it totally fizzled out. And they're like, nope, we're rapping right. and it's fun and mm -hmm. it's dancey. But also, I mean, when you listen to the song, there's there's a lot of voices going on and a lot of voices that do not sound like Millie Vanilli sounded. Yeah. You know, uh, so as their fame grew, so did the guilt and fear one would feel pulling off such a hoax, especially one of this magnitude. In order to quell these looming feelings of doom, Rob and Fab partied excessively. This would be used later as an excuse by Farion for why he did not allow them to sing on their album. With everything coming together without the knowledge or input of the faces of Millie Vanilli, the success of the group had its next big break. In March of 1989, their album All or Nothing was renamed Girl You Know It's True and released in America. A hefty 107-city tour soon followed. So now they've broken into the American market. That's about the top, you know, especially if you start, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. whatever country, and you always want to break into another continent, especially if it's, if it's America. So that's exploding. Now, with the benefit of having all the material pre-made, Farion was quick to release the next three singles globally. These hits include Baby Don't Forget My Number, Blame It on the Rain, my personal favorite, and Girl, I'm Gonna Miss You. Yeah, they're all uh, great songs. We yeah, it's all about these handsome guys uh, getting broken up with. Baby Don't Forget My Number is a good one. Yeah, but again, that's, I mean, that's also just the genius. I mean, the boy bands, like, they're, it's like, you have these incredibly attractive people singing about heartbreak and you're yep. kind of and you're, uh, you, you can't I can have be them there singing for about them. how yeah exactly yeah. you can't have them singing about like how great their life is right it's like like what you happens to make, me when i listen to taylor the, swift i'm just like <laughs> i could be like you don't have to be sad we no we love <laughs> we love like a successful sad person absolutely you know yeah and the better looking they are the better cuz it makes us feel feel better maybe i got a chance but also like there you know there's a great eddie murphy bit in his special raw where he's talking about when you know your girlfriend says that she's going to go on a trip guys are so stupid they start thinking about how much you know they're going to be cheating on her while she's gone without thinking about how much they're going to get cheated on and he describes the girlfriend walking down the beach and seeing this hunk swinging his dick as he's walking down the beach and he's got this accent <laughs> oh, yeah, and he's all ripped bit. that's millie vanilli millie That's vanilli is the guy like. that your girlfriend has sex with in the bahamas while she goes on a vacation without you right <laughs> like that's that's their kind of aesthetic they also had this these great heavily shoulder padded jackets they would wear with like bike shorts and their braids they were a set they almost look like sexy frankensteins but <laughs> like, you know like frankenstein's monster they had like oh, bolts yeah. on their neck like they have these big clunky shoes they <laughs> Axel speak Rose weird had the bike shorts too. that was a big thing that was kind of like pre-dick print um, yeah, the but, gray. <laughs> yeah, they're kind of like yoga pants for men. Is yeah, what the bike yeah. shorts were doing. So the music was not the only thing Robin Fab were left out of. New contracts were being made as their fame grew. The timeline and breakdown of the Millie Vanilli record deal is essentially this: Robin Fab were signed to Farion Productions. Farion was signed to BMG. Then entered an American contract with Artista under Clive Davis. All of this happened unbeknownst to Robin Fab. These contracts worked in such a way that Millie Vanilli albums were technically the product of Farian under his recording contract with BMG, making him the direct recipient of any royalties coming from the music, whereas Robin Fab were under contract to Farian alone as performers. So you it's just a little throw that complicated. It's a little complicated. Him, you know? it, it's a it's a way of keeping people in the dark and making right. sure that he has full control. But yes, essentially. 
like imagine Millie Vanilli is actually Farion's band on paper, and he hired Millie Vanilli essentially as backup dancers on paper. Yeah. But really, they were the the front of the group. So it's this weird kind of like long stretching, keep them in the dark, keep them as far away from where the money comes in. So right. it has to funnel through me first. And and the thing is, is the bigger they get, the bigger that of this team that Farion is, you know, amassing. Right. And obviously it's not like everyone knows, but the bigger it gets, like he has to like include more people in this thing, knowing yes. that it's, you know, obviously the musicians know, obviously you know, Rob and Fab know, but then uh, it kind of gets into it with the label and stuff. It's like, I mean, as we're going to find out that a lot of people are going to, you know, have, you know, claim people innocence knew, in it, yes. but it's just, and there are all accessories in a fucking death. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, it's going up to Clive Davis, you know? Yes. And so it's the top, you know, a massive influential, uh, you know, music and you know, industry if executive. you guys aren't familiar with, with Clive Davis as, as a person, I mean, Yes, he was the guy that signed Amer you know, Millie Vanilli to an American contract, but he's responsible for Whitney Houston as well, and Janis Joplin, and you know, tons and tons. Yeah, like of Aretha others. Franklin. Just like yeah, I mean, just, it, it it never ends. Yeah. but Millie Vanilli was was right in there. So the more famous Millie and Vanilli got, <laughs> Millie and Vanilli, Millie Vanilli got Robin Fab Millie Vanilli. That's the difference, folks, and how you pronounce them. If the the political correctness of Millie Vanilli. So Millie Vanilli, the more famous they got, the more cr the cracks began to show. Some of the actual musicians on the first single and album, a.k.a. Brad Howell, who was the oldest, Charles Shaw, Jody, and Linda Rocco, those were the, the vocalists actually credited, uh, at least on the European release. They were not happy with the outcome of their work. While some of the members did not mind being in the background, like, for instance, Brad Howell, who was so old he had no problem not being a pop star. He's like, no one's going to like this anyways because of how old I am. So he, he didn't have a problem. But others felt it was their lifelong dream to be a star and that their talent was being stolen from them. Not necessarily untrue. One singer in particular, Charles Shaw, who provided the rap vocals for the songs, was vocally upset and rumors spread that he might go public with the truth. When word of this reached Farion, he fired and replaced Shaw with a man named John Davis. It is also rumored that Farion paid Shaw $150,000 to keep his secret. After this, the musicians were kept even further away from each other and especially from Robin Fab. Again, it's just classic. keeping I mean, everyone is... in different booths, keeping everyone as far away from everything else so no one knows what's going on. This is, again, human trafficking, fucking crazy, like, manipulative pimp bullshit. I you mean, know, yeah, this, this is like is, what cults do. This is, this is totally a story about the music industry, and this is the things you hear about, like, it's just not all it's cracked up to be. And yes. This, this is all happening right now. It's all of that. It's it's great. That's why, I mean, it, again, it is this is why it's a dump. Because, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like we could do, like, the hardships of, like, you know, the Jacksons or, like, Tina Turner or anything like that. But that's not a dump. This is it's a dump. Not, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just got a lot of moving parts. Because and and our info sounds very, very well put together. So it doesn't seem yeah. as goofy as it actually is. The, the bigger it gets... And that's one thing um, that they they would say um, is like the bigger it gets, you know, they just knew Rob and Fab knew they're going back and like, you know, it's like they're getting more selling more records, getting more accolades, getting more attention, more famous, more women, more parties, you know, and they're more th food, more food, you know, and then and then like, <laughs> feed Rob and Fab. But then the door shuts and they're like they're looking at each other like, 
this is gonna bite us. This yeah. is going to come back. The higher you go up, like it's gonna come back. Yeah, the heart the, the, the further and you fall. And they knew that. They admitted to it. They knew that this thing's gonna happen. Right. And Imagine I mean, during this whole time, folks, like the the show Twenty Four with Kiefer Sutherland. This whole story of their career. Yeah, exactly. Just counting down to the fucking yeah. bomb drop. And I do think, I do think, like just the things I've seen about Millie Vanilli, like until really kind of doing this research, is you are really fed, and we'll talk about this more, but you're really fed like these two guys. They're they were fucking with the shysters, the sanctity of music and yeah, con you know, men, right? And then when you're really looking at it, it's like I would, I would like to see you know, someone else, any other aspiring artist, like if they were put in that position, how they would have acted differently. Right. Um, because it, what it's talking about is it's the machination. I would sign that contract of, right of now. fame and like the promise of it. And so, yes, of course they could have said no. I'm not like trying to act like they couldn't. Right. But it's again, you know, here at the dumps, we're, we're, op we're looking at the dump. We're going to see, you know, that there was some corn in there too. There was some spinach. There was a lot going on. It wasn't we're going to turn off so many people with our poop <laughs> references. I know okay. we, we call the show culture dumps. We're like, but it's not about poop. <laughs> it's not about poop. It's all about it's poop. About, it's about culture dumps. It's a great name. Yes. All right. Well, yeah, great. Anyways, as Robin Fab gained international fame, they started giving television interviews, mainly for MTV. This proved to be problematic for the two because neither one spoke English very well and soon after became a running joke in the music world. They were even parodied on In Living Color. Yeah. We're going to listen to that really quick. Yeah. This, just a little bit of this in, loving, in Living Color bit. I want to be Vanilli. No, you can't be Vanilli. I am always Vanilli. No, but you can't be Vanilli two days straight. Why not? Because you are Germany and I'm from French. Oh, now I get it. So it's that's brutal. Harsh. Yeah. yeah, that's that is. I mean, it's not that harsh because it's like they're just doing an impression of Millie Vanilli, essentially. But the thing is, no one like if Millie Vanilli actually sang their own songs at this time, like it wouldn't be like a big deal to do an impression of them, you know, because that's them. But the joke is these guys don't sound like their it's, music. No, it's it's harsh because they, they're playing up their accents. And again, if you listen to Millie Vanilli's interviews, like the accents are you know, it's so it's very, filtered. very heavy. Right. Because we're just happy to be here. Yeah. And so that, I think, I what am I doing? That's not a good <laughs> accent. <laughs> and then like Fab's like, oh, I'm from France and I do the no, dancing. No, 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 yeah, no. No, exactly. You know what I mean? I can't. But, I'm just not going to do it. But the In Living Color sketch, it's like they they're they're doing the accents really thick. Yeah. So like it's but now they, they don't maybe In Living Color doesn't know to the extent of what's going on. But essentially it's a big jab because people who are starting to pay attention are like, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Yeah. And the best part about the In Living Color bit is when Fab talks about this on his Vlad TV interview, he said that they were in the middle of having a huge party. Lots of food, <laughs> lots of coke. You know, everyone's having a good time. And uh, someone says, hey, you, you know, they're, they're doing you on TV. It's on. It's You guys are on In Living Color. And, and they go over. And they see that, and the whole party just kind of quiets down, and they're looking at each other like Robin Fab are just like fuck, like the jig is almost up, you know? Because like now it's not only are people talking in the press like this seems kind of weird, but now it's like being full fledged parodied on a huge TV show, and they just saw it in a room full of people that love them, so it's got to be humiliating. But it goes back to this whole thing where it's how could these guys that could barely speak English record these songs with rap verses and very clear lyrics? 
You know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. It just became very clear to people that something wasn't sitting right because you hear, you know, girl, you know it's true. Well, and and the ra- they I mean, talk the rapping, and it's, it's like they're hard English. to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like you can always see the re- like the journalist kind of leaning in a little closer and like listening really hard, you know, because, yeah, these guys couldn't speak English. Well, they, they could. And that's how they would speak to each other, which is also just so interesting because it's like I feel like they're reinforcing their poor English to each other by speaking like English with someone that can't speak their language because uh, Rob and, and Frank Farion, they would speak to each other in German and then Rob would kind of relay it back to Fab. And Fab would pick up little bits here and there. But for the most part, Rob did the talking. And I mean, maybe if they both had some input, you know, th- things might have been different, but probably not. So despite inner turmoil and mounting pressure, Millie Vanilli sold 14 million albums and 33 million singles. All four of their singles reached number one on the Billboard chart. This is a massive, massive success. 33 mm-hmm. million singles, 14 million yeah, albums. Diamond. It's like the first year they're out. Every song is solid gold. And again, it's just digging them further and further into this hole. In order to make themselves some money and to promote the album release, Robin Fab left for a U.S. tour along with downtown Julie Brown of MTV fame. Without performing, they were unable to make any money from Millie Vanilli as they were not credited with recording or having any part in the album itself. Right. Oh, yeah. And then that's the, that's the classic also where it's like you're selling 14 million records, um, but they're, you know, Robin Fab's piece of the pie uh, is it's Does a small not reflect one. That. And but again, because of the naivety of just all this happening so much, they're still making, you know, probably, you know, I they don't were know, doing good. tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. They're still right. making up for comparatively a ton of money, but they're not making nearly as much money as the whole thing you know, as exactly. Farion is making. Exactly. And that's a classic trope in, in music, especially pop music, when you're like created like a product rather than right. like a band where someone signs you and, and is like, yes, you guys like you wrote that really good song, write another one. You know, with pop stars, it's like, here's the shit that we want you to do. And, right. Uh, and, and it, but also, I mean, they didn't, they legitimately had no claim to a writing credit. Yeah, no, song. not at all. And the way that works is this. On the European release, it was stated on the album's liner notes who actually sang and what Robin Fab's role was, generally speaking. So it would, you know, it would credit the vocalist and then it would say, Rob, you know, Robin Fab, performers or dancers it, it, they would be credited not as being a vocalist but however on the american release they hid that fact a practice dating back decades before where people would be brought in to sing someone else's album and not be credited that's a huge phil specter thing with like darling love uh you know and, and like the ronettes and a lot of these bands that phil specter worked with he would use studio musicians and then send out the actual yeah. group on, and they, on and they do that on in movies too you yes. know in uh, singing segments if the star couldn't maybe not sing as well you know Yes, then they, they bring so, someone right. else in. Uh, only a few years after Millie Vanilli would this become an illegal practice in America. That's the CNC Music Factory case, which we will be doing a culture dump on. That's a whole another great one. But mm-hmm. essentially, a woman, not going to give out the details because we're going to cover it on the show, but a woman was misrepresented with someone else in the music video. She sued. Landmark case changed the way right. that crediting And again, done. It's, it's about uh, physical appearance. I mean, that's what it was. Absolutely. It's, it's essentially having... You get the best of both worlds. You get the best voice, and then you get the most attractive face, and you put them together. Uh, because yeah, that was the other thing about Millie Vanilli is like the the people, the musicians. They were older, and they just weren't like model status. Yeah, they were talented. They had all the talent that a, that you, you know, know a young. I mean, the Rolling Stones did it. They had a. They always had this piano player, mm. uh, and he would just he literally wasn't on stage. 
um, <laughs> because he was like this like big overweight guy and they were the Stones. So they always had this piano player like on stage. Just yeah. Not in sight. God, and you'd think that the Rolling Stones would be cooler than that. And they'd just be like, no, bring the so, bring the well, big guy I out. mean, this is the thing is this is kind of this. Yeah, the Stones do it. But again, you're not you're talking so far back. And you're talking about a guy playing the piano, but you know Mick Jagger is still singing, and they're also performing. So that's the it's not the t- same. That's the but start, yeah. but it, it it has the seeds of it because if you know that story, you're like, well, yeah, sure. The piano player, he's he's ugly. He doesn't right. matter. That's how it starts. It all starts to snowball. You know exactly. We have Meatball to thank for us shattering that uh, that that taboo and being a big boy on stage. Oh, <laughs> Meatloaf. He said meatball. Oh, meatball. <laughs> My bad. And I love meatloaf too. And actually, I, I don't know if I mentioned it, but Farian actually produced a meatloaf album uh, before in, in, in the eighties. So there, there is a connection there. Uh, meatloaf. I'm sorry, I called you meatball. Sure, it's not. <laughs> sure, it's not the first time. <laughs> so the tour was going off without a hitch until they arrived in Bristol, Connecticut, on July 21st, 1989, and that. Is where we're going to leave you off today. This is going to be a two-parter. It's just so dense with information. So be sure you tune in next time to hear the conclusion of the saga of Millie Vanilli brought to you by Culture Dumps. I'm Ryan Lichten. I'm Parks Miller. We'll see you next time. If you have a Culture Dumps suggestion, please send it on over to our Instagram at Culture Dumps or our email, culturedumps at gmail.com. And for exclusive bonus content, please subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash culturedumps.